2: this episode of Newt's World, I first met today's guest, Molly Grace Young, 11 years ago in 2011, when she was a professional chorister in the resident choir of the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C. My wife, Callista, and I attend worship service there, and Callista, for years sang in the Basilica Choir. Molly is an exceptional soprano, having performed as the featured soloist in international broadcasts through the Eternal Word television network in masses and concerts. Five years ago, Molly was diagnosed with stage two breast cancer at the age of 29. She decided to face cancer the only way she knew how, by entertaining people. She began lip syncing her favorite songs on Facebook and YouTube while going through her treatments, and her performances are truly amazing. Molly is a close personal friend to both Callista and me, and I wanted to have her on today to discuss her journey battling cancer and the healthcare system in America. Molly, thank you for joining me. And I just want to say that with everything you're going through, I'm really thrilled you would take the time to share your story with our listeners. And Calista, of course, wanted me to say hi to you and how proud she is of you. So, Let's start back at sort of the beginning. When did you first know you wanted to sing professionally?
4: Well, very much back to the beginning. I think it starts with my parents. They were actually both singers who met at the University of Maryland as voice majors. And actually, I'm not sure if you know this, my father sang for the Shrine in 1978. I'm a second generation Shrine singer. And only one season, but... I was talking with him earlier and realized that was a banger of a season for them because that was the year of three popes. That was the year that Paul VI died and then it was John Paul I and then John Paul II. And imagine the shrine schedule that fall, all the extra masses and things for that. So a very busy <laughs> season for them. But yeah, so from a very early age, you know, music was part of my family and my life. And I think it's a weird thing. I don't, actually have memories of learning to read music the way that I do learning to read you know, books. I have memories of being in church and being able to follow along with the hymns, but not read the words. So I would kind of superimpose my own. And if you think of like taking, you know, Jesus Christ is risen today, but using the words of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer instead, because I could sing the tune but not read the words. Hopefully I didn't do that loudly enough to bother anyone, but just to say my entire life, my childhood, and certainly growing up, middle school, high school, through church, through school, through the arts center in my hometown, lots of parroting. and I think at the point where I had to make choices about college and kind of a calling, you know, a livelihood, that just made sense to me, for sure.
2: So, did I assume your parents encouraged you in music?
4: Oh, yes. I first started piano with my mother. She was my first voice teacher. I wouldn't say there was any pushing, but encouragement is definitely a good word. We all took music lessons, and that was something that was just kind of very natural to all three of us, my brothers and I. Yeah.
2: That's wild. So, it was just sort of part of the way the family was?
4: Yes, to the point that we actually have a Christmas album as a family, which is on Spotify. It's called Coming from the Cold, and it has originals and arrangements by my brother Micah. And I sing soprano, my mom is singing alto, and my other brother is tenor, my father's a baritone. So we're a little choir (laughs) on it.
2: You know, in the time I've known you, you've always been a happy and a very positive person. Did that come out of your family? Absolutely.
4: Yeah. We're very close, and I think humor is a real, you know, core quality to our time together and how we approach life. I definitely use humor as a coping mechanism through these, you know, kind of darker times with cancer, everything else. But yes, that's definitely been fostered for me since childhood.
2: So your default has been humor rather than anger.
4: Yes, I think so. It's a little bit, I think, sometimes of... The ridiculous charm from Harry Potter, which has everything to do with taking something you're afraid of and finding a way to laugh at it. I think that's a very powerful thing to take ownership of something that frightens you. And that's been my approach, yeah.
2: So as you graduate from high school, you go on to Western Michigan University. Very impressively, you graduate summa Cum Laude with a Bachelor of Music degree in Vocal Performance. Then you go to Johns Hopkins to the Peabody Institute, which is one of the great vocal centers of America, and get a Master of Music degree in Vocal Performance and Early Music Performance. Did you enjoy just kind of studying and being immersed in music?
4: Oh, absolutely. I think, you know, if it were feasible, I would have stayed a student a lot longer in some ways. I love to learn. I'm a lifelong learner. And I think something that does draw me to singing, and then again, to teaching singing is it's never over. There's never a point where I'm finished as a singer or as a teacher. And I learn from every new student I meet. And, you know, no matter what, if I became a perfect singer, there's still new music being written. So it's never over. I
2: love that. I always tell people that, you know, Calista plays the piano and the French horn and sang in the professional choir with you, and that my job was audience. I'm a necessary part of your life.
4: And carrying her folder and her robe. (laughs) I remember that, yeah, on the bus.
2: (laughs) On the bus, and on occasion carrying her French horn, but not the piano. She's never asked me to carry the piano, so I guess I should be grateful for that. So I say this as somebody who's only audience, but my sense was that singing for Peter Latona, that Peter's background was in a way exquisite for that particular choir, that he brought to it a level of talent and a standard, that which you certainly met, of just expecting excellence, expecting performances that every single Sunday are amazing.
4: Oh, yeah. I think Peter has a great gift for putting a good group together, and especially the blend. I mean... The years I spent in the Shrine Choir, and especially that soprano section, and we're all incredibly close just personally as well, but the way that we have such a variety of voices and gifts in that section who could do so many different things but also come together and sound like one voice was just unique. It's truly incredible.
2: So you've also done opera. you performed the title role in Melissa Dunphy's González Cantata in the world premiere. Is Doing a role like that is different than being part of a choir.
4: Absolutely. Yeah. Anytime you're singing as a soloist and certainly in the context of, I guess, a dramatic story on stage, it's a different technique. Because in a choir, I'm constantly having to listen to everyone around me in a different way and blend with them and, you know, pay attention to, all right, we have a really long line to sing and who's going to breathe where so we can kind of stagger that and make it seem seamless. Getting on stage is very different. There's choreography or blocking and motion and a lot more storytelling in a way. But I enjoy both. That's the variety of, I think, the freelance type of career is you get to have a lot of different hats, let's say.
2: You have a marvelous soprano voice, and it's always a joy to listen to you. Now, you've sung Mozart and Vivaldi. Do you have a particular favorite composer that you particularly love singing?
4: Oh, that's a great question. Well, one of the reasons that I did stay at Peabody for a second masters was to focus on early music, which is music written before 1750, because that's something that I kind of grew up with a little bit because that was my mother's soprano voice also she sang a lot of early music. She sang with the Washington Bach concert when it was kind of brand new with Riley Lewis, and I think partially because of that bias of my upbringing, maybe. I got to say Bach every time. He's my guy, I think. And Bach, Handel, Vivaldi, those are all composers I really love to sing, for sure.
2: Well, and you were the featured soloist in the Baltimore Concert Series on Bach. So in that sense, you've earned that closeness. Now you also, and I remember this because I was there, but you also sang for Pope Francis when he visited Washington in 2015. I mean, what was that like to have a papal visit?
4: Oh, my goodness. I have so many strong memories of that day. It was truly a once-in-a-lifetime experience. I think the thing that resonates with me the most was, you know, time you have someone that important, right, it's a lot of hurry up and wait. So we were kind of in place inside the shrine for quite a while before we actually performed. But the sense of knowing he was approaching because we could hear even through this enormous building and these very, very thick, you know, marble stone walls, we could hear the roar of the crowd. It was probably one of the closest experiences to being like in a rock concert for me to sense this electric energy in the building, outside the building. I mean, there were crowds and crowds just thronged outside the shrine. And one of our assistant music directors, Ben La Prairie had written this piece for us to sing when the Pope was walking in. And we all give him such a hard time in rehearsal because we're like, Ben, you know, these high notes, it's just give us a break, man. But he was so right. He was so on point because the energy of that piece and the Sopranos were like way, way up there. And it felt like a real screamer to us. But it was one of the most just I keep using this word electric, but that's what I can think of in that memory is we were singing at the real extreme of all of our ranges, and it was just so bold in that moment. And he's coming down the aisle, and of course, security's having to keep all the nuns from like rushing him. It was, it was a madhouse. It was wild, but so, so special to be a part of that moment in history.
2: It meant a great deal to Clisten. Of course, she went on to become the ambassador to the Vatican and to interact with the Pope at a diplomatic level, but I think it's always something that she will treasure being with you for that.
0: Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms, and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
3: Your tax refund belongs to you, not an identity thief. Over $6 billion in tax refunds were flagged by the IRS for possible identity theft in 2023.
2: It was a great shock to all of us when at age 29 you were diagnosed with stage 2 breast cancer. How did you find out that you had it?
4: Well, this is a weird thing to say, but I do say it a lot. I'm a very lucky cancer patient. (laughs) And I know those words don't always go together, but one of the ways in which I find myself very lucky is simply the positioning of my original tumor. One of the reasons that young breast cancer patients... Sometimes it doesn't get caught, they don't find it right away. It's just that the tissue is so much denser. And that's the reason they don't do routine mammograms until later, because it just is not always effective. But for me, the tumor was so far to the side, it was almost like kind of on my ribs a little bit, and something much more obvious to me. I can't even tell you that I was being responsible and doing regular checks at that time. But it was something that I kind of felt and was like, oh, that's really weird. It didn't go away. It didn't change. And so I was very fortunate on January 1st of 2017, I started an insurance program with Kaiser Permanente. And I was in an opera that month, so I was really, really busy. But I was like, I should make an appointment. And I got one with a new doctor. And, you know, it's so weird. I remember being in that appointment and almost not telling her because I just didn't want it to be real. But finally, you know, kind of knew at the end of the... She said, is there anything else before we go? And I was like, yeah, there's this lump. She took a look and she agreed. She sent me in for an ultrasound and... That was kind of the start of figuring out what was going on there.
2: So did they develop a treatment plan for you?
4: So after diagnosis, yeah, it was the whole team, right? It was my oncologist, a surgeon, a radiation oncologist, a plastic surgeon, like everybody on the same team at Kaiser met together, figured out what the best plan was before they brought it to me. So in my first appointment, I met every single one of them and, Learned what would happen next.
2: And I mean, were you relatively comfortable? Because the five year survival rate for stage two breast cancer is pretty high. It's like 90 to 99%. So were you pretty comfortable at that point that this was something that could just be dealt with?
4: I don't think so. I think I was terrified. You know, you can look at rates all you want and in either direction, good or bad, they only mean so much to me. And I say that now as a later stage patient that i don't look at the survival rates for stage 4 and believe them i don't because i have to think of myself as a person and not a number but back then as a like brand new patient having i mean i had no family history so i didn't even have any context from anyone else kind of close to me that had been through this before so for all i knew i was going to die i had no idea it was terrifying
2: were you able to find some survivors to talk to and to learn from?
4: Yes, that was a huge lifeline. And I'm really thankful for that, especially through kind of social media, that there were people who connected me to friends of friends, you know, this person also just went through this. I met a friend even in person in Baltimore through a mutual friend, and she was 29 at the same time. Like We were really parallel in our stories, so we kind of became comrades that way. And that's the biggest thing for any new patient is not to go to Google and try to fall down that rabbit hole of information, but to actually find other patients who have real-life experience that they can share. I think that's immensely important.
2: So you began to receive treatments, and I think – What was amazing to us was, and I hope everybody who's listening will go to YouTube and will search for the unsinkable Molly Grace, because you suddenly began doing these YouTube videos that are astonishing. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. It was a living out of your artistic brilliance in a way that I would never have dreamed of, and that both Clist and I, particularly when we were in Rome as she served as ambassador, we would look at these and try to keep track of you. And you just had this enormous resilience. Could you describe, how did you decide that while you were taking, I think it was you were taking chemotherapy, that you would do videos? It's an amazing achievement.
4: (laughs) Well, thank you. The funny thing is, you know, it has become something much more for other people. It has grown, it has spread. I've been so... Humbled and just pleased to hear, especially from other cancer patients, that you know, hey, I'm going through a hard time and I saw your video and made me smile today, or particularly for other young patients who have children and they can say, you know, some of the Disney ones that I've done or silly fun ones where they say, you know, my kids are so scared, but they see you in a costume hooked up just like mom is and it makes them laugh or it makes them not as scared of all the medicine and all the treatments. But it all started just as a distraction for myself. I often equate my psyche to a toddler who just needs some pots and pans to bang around. And, you know, if I were to even try to fully grasp the gravity and the danger of the situation that I'm in every day, I don't think I'd ever stop crying, you know, but I can't, I have to put that aside and Find an alternative focus. And the biggest advice I was told going into chemo by other patients, by anyone, was to have a hobby. Chemo is really boring. (laughs) It's often really long, and it's not even for a lot of people, you know, the effects of chemo are going to come in the days and weeks after. It's not while you're hooked up. So you're just kind of sitting there, and maybe you feel fine or you're sleepy or whatever. But the idea of going into those appointments with a book or knitting or something like that. It just wasn't enough. The situation I was in was horrific. And so I needed something equally big in a way to balance. You know, it's funny, I look back at the first videos. And I'm like, Oh, this is peasant work. This is no good. Because I wasn't doing full length videos. There's no costume. The only thing I was wearing was red lips, because of the whole red lip army movement in which a friend of mine had suggested that my friends and family wear red lipstick on my treatment days as a show of solidarity, and a kind of defiance in that I am not a person who likes pink or pink ribbons. And of course, I ended up getting the pink cancer. But I kind of tried to, I don't know, control the narrative a bit and choose red and red lips as an act of defiance. So that was how it started. But they were very short videos for the first few. I'm Thinking back to the one that really sparked the costumes, I think it was for July 4th that I did Katy Perry's firework and I got some pinwheels to stick to my bald head and I had a friend off camera blowing them so they're spinning on the camera. It tickled my funny bone so much. It became this pursuit of, well, what's the next thing that's going to make me laugh? And if it makes other people laugh, great. But it, it really started as a way just to distract and soothe my own self at that point.
2: In that process, one of the things I noticed was you do have very loyal friends and that your friends helped make it. You couldn't have done this purely by yourself.
4: Absolutely not. No, I'm, again, the luckiest cancer patient you're ever going to meet, even born on St. Patrick's Day, that lucky. (laughs) But yeah, no, the community I have, my family, my friends and friends of friends of friends. Again, social media, I know it's a mixed bag, but I've had so many blessings from it. Absolutely.
2: So how many total have you done by now? Do you know offhand? 48. Wow. And each of them was connected to a chemotherapy session?
4: Chemotherapy or immunotherapy, which are both infusion drugs. So with each one of them, I have a chemo port. I'm connected to the machine. I'm getting the drip. I did 30 the first round. And then I've done 17 up till this past December, and I just did the first of season three <laughs> last week, I think. Yeah.
2: Yeah. On our show page, we're going to link to your unsinkable Molly Grace, and all the videos pop up there. And I just have to tell people you're going to be amazed when you watch these. Now, one of the things that really became sort of legendary is your costumes are so good that Clifton and I at first thought you must have a costume designer, but I understand that's not true. Not only are you the performer, but you're also the costume designer.
4: Costumes, makeup, props, all of it. Yeah. When I say I need a distraction, (laughs) it's really comprehensive, you know, and some of the costumes are simple and it's just like an outfit. But I remember I did, oh man, one of my favorite mashups Around Thanksgiving in season one, I did empty chairs at empty tables from Les Mis, but dressed as a Thanksgiving turkey. So it's the turkey talking about all his friends. (laughs) I was very homemade with that costume. You know, here I am, it was like 11 o'clock at night the day before chemo. And I'm sitting on my living room floor and cutting out feathers of red and orange and yellow construction paper to make a feathered like back piece for this turkey costume. And it, again, just cracked me up. I thought how absurd and silly and ridiculous this is. I'm a cancer patient, but because I'm doing this craft for this costume, for this silly video, I'm not as focused on my mortality or the pain or the nausea or the side effects. I'm using my energies towards the Creativity of producing something and making something out of nothing. And I think there's an enormous healing strength in that, however, we can find it.
2: So I'm curious because you're doing lip syncing. Do you rehearse at all?
4: Oh, yes. (laughs) Bless you, Newt, for thinking I just do that off the fly.
2: (laughs) Um, Well, remember, I'm audience. (laughs) (laughs)
4: Well, you know, no, that's the thing. I have a performer personality, but I also have performer experience, which is to say, rehearse, 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 always be prepared. And that's the thing is, I have a set amount of time to get this right. I don't ever want to be in the way of my nurses or holding up somebody else who needs to get in their chair because I haven't gotten a good take, right? There's a lot of rehearsal. If there's something with any props or like changes in the makeup, anything like that, I always practice ahead of time. Absolutely.
2: So I'm very curious. You may not know this off the top of your head, but what's the most takes and the fewest takes?
4: Ooh, That's a great question. Well, I can tell you right away, the fewest takes will be my most recent one, which was Unstoppable by Sia. And the reason for that is I chose very purposely to make this one a little bit of a different mood. I usually do stuff that's funny, silly, heartwarming, you know, any combination of those things. And I just, I couldn't bring myself to do that this time because it's so much worse. Tumors in my brain, you know, a second site of metastatic cancer and the odds are so much worse for me now. And I'm aware of it as much as I aim to empower myself and anyone who sees it, I had to do something a little bit more honest. And so the video, when you see it, you know, it starts out and it's kind of my default, you know, defiant kind of look and mood. And then there's a second verse and I start crying Like, I'm actually crying, and that's not fake. Those emotions are real, but it's also controlled because I knew at the end I wanted to shake that off and finish Defiant, but that's all part of, you know, for me, I did practice that quite a bit of allowing myself to kind of dip into that emotion and express it and then get it back, and that's something that I knew I couldn't do over and over in that chair.
2: So in a sense, you begin... And you close unstoppable, and in the middle, you feel it.
4: Yes, I think, and you know, the words being, I put my armor on and show you how strong I am. And that's true, and I do, and I am strong, but I wish I didn't have to be. That's the emotion in the middle of the song is like, I'm so tired. I'm so tired of being strong. I'm so tired of having to be so brave and fierce and courageous and all those other adjectives. At the end of the day, I would give anything to be someone else's cheerleader and not be going through this. But at the end of the song, it's like, well, okay, but here we are. Boots on the ground. We do it.
1: I especially love the dance challenges so much fun. Oh, and there's no comments or messaging, so you don't get any of that negativity that's all over other social networks. Oh, my friends love it. I love that it's KidSafe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Uh, that's great, but I wouldn't be doing Zigazoo if it wasn't fun. She would not be doing it if I didn't think her data was safe. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today.
2: So to take you back to that for just a minute, and I know it must have been a terrible moment in your life. You were in remission, and you must have had a sense of optimism. And then in December of 2020, you discovered that it had spread to your lungs, and that you were treated then for lung cancer.
4: Breast cancer in my lungs, and that's a very common misconception. So breast cancer, it's technically always breast cancer, but it can travel through the body, which is when it becomes late-stage, metastatic, and we currently do not have a cure for that. There are a lot of treatments and a lot more coming. You know, science moves very quickly, and I'm in really wonderful hands with my medical team. But finding out it was in my lungs, oh man, especially as a singer, it's just insulting. It's like, you know, I could deal with it once and then it came around a second time. And especially during a pandemic of a respiratory disease of COVID, that was my first thought was I must have COVID. I went to my oncologist and mentioned, you know, my breathing is just off. I'm getting winded so quickly. I'm short of breath. And it's a wonderful thing that I brought it up because my labs and my scans were all clear at that time. If you looked at my blood or at even PET scans at that time, everything was fine. He ordered me a CAT scan of my chest, and that's how he found it. But if I hadn't brought that up in that appointment, it could have gone on quite a bit longer before we noticed it.
2: You were being treated for that. And then in January of this year, you were diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer in your brain, which must have come as a terrible shock.
4: That's a good word for it. Yeah, I had a day where in my right eye, there were just blinking spots and swirling and kind of a depth perception issue. And that had happened to me maybe a couple times in the past year for a minute or two, but nothing. It was very transient. I didn't really clock it. And then that day, it just went on for hours and hours. It wouldn't stop. I canceled my lessons. I was lying in a dark room, just willing it to go away. But finally, my husband, who's a doctor, and I, we decided, yeah, we got to go to the emergency room. So they did a CAT scan on my head, then an MRI, and then I got admitted for a few days because we found over 30 tumors in my
2: brain. As I understand it, you had one large tumor and a number of small tumors.
4: Correct. So there are a couple days of back and forth about the plan, specifically between surgery and radiation oncology of, you know, what was the cost benefit here Of going into surgery. And it was my radiation oncologist who really, I think, went to bat for me and said, you know, radiation can work if we get this one big one out. But we've got to do that first to give her the best chance. Because from her end, she said, you know, if we leave that in, I can do this radiation plan, but we might be back here in six months in the same situation. So I did have a craniotomy on January 19th, I believe, and they took out that first largest one, which was, again, luckily, very far up to the edge. They didn't really have to excavate too far into my brain, which was fantastic. And as terrified as I was going into brain surgery, it would, like, textbook perfect. It couldn't have gone better. I was home the next day. It was amazing.
2: I mean, isn't that sort of amazing, the scale and the momentum of the new therapies and the new approaches and things that they now do with microsurgery that would have been 20 years ago horrendous. Absolutely.
4: No, science is just unreal. And I think about that a lot, being lucky. I have a breast cancer friend, and I said to her once, I was like, you know, If we were just, you know, peasant women in the 1400s, they would slap some leeches on us and they might bloodlet and then we'd die and that'd be it. But here we are. We get to be cancer patients in, you know, 2022 and so many therapies and options that are going to keep us going.
2: When we balanced the federal budget while I was speaker, we made a specific provision to double the size of the National Institutes of Health. Because we just thought that the momentum of science was just beginning to really become practical in terms of healthcare, And I think it's clearly paid off. In almost every aspect of healthcare now, every month we're making new breakthroughs. Now, when you and I chatted about you doing this, one of the things that we agreed on was that you've had a particular experience with insurance and, and you feel strongly about it and i wanted you to share with people because i think you felt as we discussed it that the affordable care act really had dramatically changed your life and maybe in a sense had saved your life do you want to spend a couple minutes and talk about how you see the health system and what your concerns are about it
4: yeah absolutely and i'll to preface that by saying as we <laughs> spoke earlier i have 3 degrees in music so i am by no means a healthcare or policy expert, I'm simply a patient with real life experience. I've been fortunate to be gainfully employed as a singer, as a musician and a teacher since I graduated. And I have the amount of work that is full time, but it's a lot of different employers and different gigs and such. So there was no opportunity for me through employment to be insured. So it was through the ACA that I was able to afford getting on any insurance plan at all. And I'm so, so fortunate that I chose Kaiser Permanente. And I started with them January 1st, 2017. And when I say fortunate, they have what's called a medical financial assistance program that is an extra tier level of care for both low income patients, but also any patient who meets what they call a high medical expense criteria, which cancer definitely falls under. So the minute I was diagnosed as an oncology patient, I was given a year of free care with them. I was already a member in the program, but that meant no copays, no deductibles, none of that. And so I was able to kind of move forward with surgery, with chemo, with radiation, with hormone therapy, with immunotherapy, all the things that I did. And all I had to really worry about was dying. (laughs) And that sounds so silly, but that should be the privilege of any cancer patient, um, that you can actually just focus on your healing and focus on taking care of yourself and managing through this process. And when I got married, my husband is in the military. So eventually I switched over onto his insurance, which is TRICARE. And here again, there's no back and forth between insurance and doctor or I've never had to... Argue about the legitimacy of the need for a scan or a prescription or anything. And these are things that I see online all the time cancer patients saying, oh, my doctor wants me to get this scan. My insurance doesn't think I need it. So they're not going to cover it. And we're talking about 1000s of dollars, just for a scan, just to see if you're dying faster. And it's just unbelievable. The agony that a lot of patients go through that's not even connected to their illness, but just to the red tape of getting everything covered. So when I say I'm lucky, yet again, every time I've gone through cancer, I've been able to focus on myself, and not on the bills. And so to me, that's why this conversation, I couldn't have it without mentioning that, because it's all well and good to applaud my wonderful videos and my positive spirit and all of that, but it couldn't exist. If I didn't have the coverage that I've had, I would not have the energy and the bandwidth to put on costumes and lip sync in the chemo ward, if I were also worrying about How do I pay for all these things to live? That's not been a part of my experience, which I'm acutely aware is not the norm.
2: Somehow, whatever we end up with in terms of insurance systems, as I understand it, early detection is absolutely crucial to survival rates. So there has to be a huge bias in favor of testing and in favor of screening. I mean, is that sort of your experience?
4: Absolutely. And You know, for patients to feel like if something's wrong, that they can go get it checked out. The number of stories I could tell about people who are sick or are worried and they don't go to a doctor because they think, I can't afford that. Whether it's the copay, I'm talking about people who are insured also, not even just people who can't afford insurance off the bat. And certainly they're at this extreme disadvantage. Even my own brother, when he was, I think, between insurances, this is a few years back, but he had extreme abdominal pain. And he was terrified of the bills. He didn't go to the doctor for a week. And he had appendicitis. And it was so much worse because he had waited, they had to take out a section of his intestines because of it. And it's bizarre to me, you know, we're in a first world country and that citizens would feel that way, that they just have to kind of like hold on to that pain or that worry and not go get the treatment that they need because they can't budget for it. That's not right. That shouldn't be the way it is.
2: So as we try to redesign the system, ensuring access for screening, for diagnostics, and then ensuring that if it's a serious problem, they it gets taken care of.
4: That's the hope, right? And that should be the plan is, if you can, you know, whatever it is, cancer, any other number of conditions, if you can catch it early, that's actually going to save money in the long run. You know, a later stage cancer patient is going to need far bigger treatments, right? I think I shared with you the amounts I tried to do a ballpark, and I'm pretty sure it's a very low ball. When I asked my husband, if you just had to throw out a number from 2017 to now, what it has taken to keep me alive. And he said, mm, we're looking at a million dollars. I spent some time adding things up, calculating how many CAT scans have I had and MRIs and this and that. And he's not far off. And my goodness, and I was early stage at the beginning. But the point being, nothing comes cheap. And I'm aware of that. Nothing is free, right? These drugs and these treatments, all this stuff. And it, you know, a lot of development and research and time and these scientists, these doctors, the commitment and energy they put into that. I'm aware of that. However, it's just if we could catch things earlier, and have people get these scans, that's routine, we could probably save quite a bit, I think.
2: I think that's right. And part of that's also convincing people, even if it's free, convincing them that they need to come do it.
4: Absolutely. And that first appointment, I was scared to tell the doctor that I had that lump. I just didn't want it to be true. One of the analogies I have for myself is a little bit about my history of cars, in which I have a bad habit, especially in my 20s, of if I heard a bad noise or something coming from my car, kind of just tried to pretend it wasn't happening. And it always ended up being worse, you know. I would eventually have to take it in, and then I cost myself more trouble and money because I hadn't gotten it fixed at the onset. And our health is that way as well. And, you know, our health is something we shouldn't skimp on. We shouldn't budget. You know, you can get a used car. You can get all sorts of budgeted items in your life, but your health, my goodness, that should be number one.
2: Callista's father has said, that health is everything, that if you have good health, it's amazing what you can go through. And if you have bad health, it just focuses your life. I'm curious, on the psychological side, what's your advice to others who go through cancer treatments or other similar difficult health situations?
4: That's a great question. I think one of the biggest things is to not be afraid to ask for help. I think a lot of us are not always comfortable reaching out and asking for that, I'm so lucky and my own community, my own network people who support me in so many different ways. And I'm incredibly grateful for that. And I think it's a mutual thing, right? That people in your life, they want to help in a situation that can feel so helpless and being able to ask for what you need. I think that's a huge thing. And then I think I already mentioned this, but Oh man, stay off Google. There's a limit to, how much information can be helpful. And again, if I were to look at all the statistics, if I I were to really focus on my odds, it would be hard to get out of bed in the morning, you know? But I keep telling myself I'm not a statistic. I'm a person. I get to write my own story.
2: That's great. Well, you've written an amazing story so far. and As you know, Clista and I pray for you and think you're just amazing. And I want you to know that we're taking very seriously trying to think through a reshaping of the health system to meet the kind of standards you're talking about, both making it easy and normal to have early examinations and early checks and also finding a way that when people have a serious problem that their primary concern has to be their health and not their wallet. And Molly, I want to thank you. And I know this is a difficult topic, although you do it so well and you make it so positive. It's remarkable. And I really appreciate... And I think our entire audience will appreciate both you taking the time to talk about your personal experience in battling cancer and your honest thoughts about what has to be done for the system. We are going to have links on our show page so people can watch your videos. (laughs) They're truly amazing. And I recommend them to all of our listeners. And I want to thank you. And I know I speak for Calista also and taking this time and being with us. And we look forward so much to listening to your singing again and the amazing job you do.
4: Well, thank you so much for having me.
2: Thank you to my guest, Molly Grace Young. You can watch her lip-syncing videos on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howe, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show is was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcast and both rate us with five stars and give us a review, so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at Gingrich360.com/newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World.
0: Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And any time is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free...